Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I took Madonna, R.E.M., Simply Red, Rod Stewart with us. I'm pretty much from the minute we started, the phone rang. This is Music Made Me Do It, a podcast from Loud and Quiet magazine. I'm Stuart Stubbs, and each week I'll be speaking to people who felt compelled to start their own successful companies within the music industry. Barbara Sharon is affectionately known as BC within the music industry and is a legendary name within the world of music PR. Now, this is a section of the music business that for once I do actually know something about, because when you're a journalist and magazine editor, your closest relationships are artist PRs. A PR, or press officer, is the person who directs an artist's press campaign, which includes setting up all of their interviews and photo shoots with traditional print media like newspapers and magazines, as well as digital media like websites and podcasts. Any interview you've seen with one of your favourite artists has only happened because a PR in charge of that campaign has set it up, often pitching the idea to the magazine in question in the first place. Music PRs also send out records, get people into gigs and act as an official spokesperson for artists in times of victory and crisis. BC has been a PR since 1981, first at the Warner label before co-founding NBC PR in the year 2000. Most famously, she has represented Madonna since the very start of her career, as well as artists including Depeche Mode, Foo Fighters, Kasabian, Mark Ronson and Keith Richards. Yet, this episode of the podcast is actually a bit of a two-for-one, because BC wasn't always a celebrated name in the world of music PR. Growing up in Chicago in the early 70s, she started her career as a successful music critic and journalist herself, writing for titles including Enemy, Rolling Stone, Cream, and the Chicago Sun-Times. I had a column in my high school paper and wrote about music and spent all my money on tickets to gigs and records in those days this and, is in Chicago right? yeah in yeah. Chicago and then did a year of university in the UK where I started to write for NME and I was writing for the Chicago Sun-Times sending articles back and then went back to Chicago to for my last year to graduate and wrote for NME from like a US correspondent mm-hmm. And started to write for Rolling Stone a little bit. And then as soon as I graduated, I moved to London. Sure. Got a job on Sounds, which was one of four music papers at the time in the gl- golden glory days of music journalism. And I worked for Sounds for about three and a half years. And then I left to do Keith Richards' authorized biography. Uh, and I spent about three years doing that, mm. which was um, amazing. And after that, 
I needed some routine in my life, not surprisingly, <laughs> and some money. I, I freelanced for about a year for Cream and Crawdaddy and um, yeah, quite a lot of American magazines. And then I took a job at Warner Brothers, um, working for Moyer Bellis in the press office, writing press releases. Mm. And then about uh, having done that for about two years, eventually someone left and they were like, oh, do you want to do press? And I was like, okay. I used to do, because Atlantic was part of Warner Brothers, I used to have to go to Donington every year. We had the first band on and the last band off. Right. So I'd be on a bus with all these journalists going, do you want coffee or a croissant? <laughs> and they'd be taking sulfate. It was <laughs> mad. So I did that. And also, um, I guess pretty early on, one of the acts I did was Madonna, mm. funnily enough. Sure. When you were writing whilst at uni for the Chicago Sun-Times, was that quite rare? Because you were really young to be doing No, that. I think totally rare. Yeah. I mean... First of all, I think having been a journalist, it stands you in such good stead to be a PR because, first of all, most PRs, especially these days, can't write a decent press release. And I think if you can't write, you're not as good. Mm. It's obviously fantastic for being able to have angles, pitches, positioning. Well, I'm a newspaperaholic anyway, so I love nothing better than reading lots of magazines and, and newspapers. So... You know, I think it's just a huge positive. But I was also, and this is another thing that makes you probably good at being a PR, very, very, very um, tenacious. Hmm. You, know, you know, there's a thing. Even from the, begin- from the very well, beginning. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. I used to, I mean, I think the reason that Rolling Stone gave me a try was because I just hounded them and wouldn't stop ringing them, you know. And you have to be like that. I was always very confident and, um, I guess, persuasive. Right. All good traits for for being a PR as well as a journalist. So when did you decide I'm going to be, I want to try and become a music journalist? At what age were you like, I'm going to be a writer? Oh, I was, um, I had a little printing thing when I was like in seventh or eighth grade. And as I said, I had a column in my high school paper. So, I mean, I was quite good at school writing. You know, I tested well in English because, you know, I must have just been able to write. Some people can and some people Mm. can't. You know, I would have finished the exam and been out the room, and others would be struggling with their little outline. So, yeah, I guess I just, um, but I think I grew up in a house, you know, we always had music and um, newspapers and books, and my parents went to the theater. So I guess it was pretty arts-based. Sure. I used to go to concerts. I spent all my money on concerts, and I accosted the music critic from the Chicago Sun-Times and kind of said, I want to do what you do when I grow up. And he was like, well, if you have anything interesting, send it. And the first thing I sent in got printed. Wow. And when that happens, you just think, fuck. <laughs> what and was the, what was the also, there's thing? nothing like seeing, you know, that excitement. of. I mean, even now the excitement's different. I still get excited when I see a spread like we just launched the Keen album and they had a really great spread in the Times on the day we announced and I still get excited. That's the other end of it. Mm. But uh, it was on James Taylor. Okay. Well, a live review. No, a think piece. Okay. And you just sent that in. Yeah. And they printed that straight away. Yeah. Wow. And then... Um, what age would you have been when that happened? I would have been probably 18. Right. Okay. So you're already just ha- yeah. instantly have that confidence now because you're just like... 
Well, I think, yeah, and also when you're young. I mean, I moved to London when I was 22. Mm. I mean, I moved to London from America. Yeah. And took crazy. a job and got a work permit. And I was lucky because um, writing is something you could argue you write with an American point of view. Mm. And they were worried, you know, so you weren't taking the place of a British person. But sure. Yeah. Was music journalism in the 70s as cool as it is now remembered in history? Right? Yeah, I think even cooler. Yeah. The whole, um, the quality, I think the quality of writing in, in England is so much better than America now. And I think that a lot of the, especially I'd say The Guardian, I think the quality of the writing in music is fantastic. Um, also sports, sports, I'm a huge um, football fan and and actually lots of sports but the quality of the writing is really great like Madonna recently the stuff people wrote about her album here compared to America's night and day right but um, yeah I mean Rolling Stone just as a um, as a kid as a fan I think everyone when you were going to see a band you wanted to read an interview you wanted to have some contact with them it was a different era it was before Instagram and mm. before their own people tweeting and there was no connection with them except when you went to the show or if you read about them or heard them on the radio I guess or saw them on TV mm. so it was just completely different climate but you know the, it's legendary how access was better sure, I mean I used yeah. to roll up to Eric Clapton's house for interviews and you would be privy to things that happened with drink or drugs where it was just a given you wouldn't write about it mm. When did that change? At what t around what time? I think it was probably just gradual. I don't think there was any... I think it was probably the nature of music that changed and the nature of... I was going to say the nature of celebrity and I think the part of the problem is that people became celebrities as opposed yeah. to just being musicians. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at the... You read, you know, it's all those stories about Led Zeppelin... I never went on a Led Zeppelin tour. I mean, I was more, much more the Stones and the Who. All that stuff that happened, that it doesn't just that doesn't happen anymore. Mm. Not just with the journalists, but with the artists. Yeah, motorbikes in hallways up. Um, oh, throwing TVs hotels. out the window, yeah. and you know, just the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That kind of um, it all feels a lot tamer now, I guess, and totally tame and there are big but, huge teams around artists that there weren't necessarily back yeah. then they were just well it's run probably like the film business in mm. terms of the big big stars but again going back to my point about UK journalism Alexis Petridis had 45 minutes with Madonna maybe even 43 and he wrote an amazing piece that was interesting funny riveting informative and you know, the New York Times spent days and days over a period of time with her, and it was nothing compared to Alexis. Really? Piece, yeah. In that particular case, the writer wrote about themselves more than Madonna. Right, okay. Which is cardinal rule number one. Absolutely. So is that why the, the kind of difference between British writing, is that why you... Moved. I moved here because I came here for a year of university and I loved it. Um, prior to that, I had been here on a family trip to Europe and I loved it. And I loved it pretty much from the minute the plane landed at Heathrow. And it was pretty much all based on music. I mean, I got excited when I saw Waterloo Bridge because of the kinks. Yeah. I went to Liverpool. I freaked out. I was like, oh my God, the Beatles. 
I just loved it. You just know when you love somewhere. And um, I think also being American, um, no disrespect to the UK, but I always say that, you know, everyone in the UK kind of keeps too much in and Americans traditionally let too much out. But I think um, if you get the balance right, so it was quite good, this kind of bullshit American girl, woman, you know, who loved music. And also so much, uh, most of the music I loved was British. Mm. And also once you start to write here or live here, everything, because of the size, I mean, it is like the size of a state mm. and everything is pretty much in London. And you can make a tremendous impact Obviously, an artist can or, you know, a press campaign or whatever quite quickly here. Yeah. What year was it that you moved here? I moved here in the mid-70s. Okay. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> and then your writing career kind of, it was going from strength to strength throughout the whole of the 70s. As you say, like at the end in 79, you published the Keith Richards autobiography. Yeah. And then... It came out in America, and I think eight, about a year or two later. Right, okay. I left Sounds because I wanted to do a book. Right. The career was unbelievable. Uh, three and a half, four years. And I had cover stories on Crawdaddy and Cream. I had one Rolling Stone cover story. It was phenomenal. I was flying all over in economy, mm. but you don't know better then. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it was amazing. But I wanted to do something, I guess, that had more permanence to it. Mm. And um, I actually wanted to do a book on The Who. Right. Did a lot on them. Um, loved rock bands. And um, Roger Daltrey was keen and Pete Townsend wasn't. So I then moved my aspirations to The Stones. And at the time, there were about three writers that had Keith's ear. One was Nick Kent. One was Pete Erskine, who sadly now passed away and one was me and I think that Keith even in his rock and roll fog kind of thought I think that book will come out because <laughs> mm, right, um, some of them dabbled in very serious drugs sure yeah um, so yeah and it was an amazing thing to do and then once I did it I didn't want to go back to just writing you know you if you look at that era of music papers you know I was probably writing one or two features a week, a live review, a couple record reviews, you know, maybe 6,000, you know, mm. the pieces in the magazines were, were big, long. Yeah. I mean, I never looked back or sat around thinking, what am I going to do? It was all just a kind of natural right. progression. And then freelancing for a year after I, I did the book really didn't suit me, and I also needed money. Mm. So that was when you went to work at Warner, Warner Brothers, yeah. In the press department. Yeah. How did that come about? Was that something that... Well, Moyer Bellis, who runs NBC with me, mm. ran the press office, and we were really good friends. Right. And she, she just suggested it. They had our staff writer. Right. So I wrote press releases. I mean, I wrote my book and a lot of press releases in the beginning on a typewriter. Mm. I mean, I wrote an entire book on a typewriter with Tipex when you make an error. <laughs> okay. There were no computers. It's mad to think of that now. I got into football before Sky Sports. That's a mad right. thing to think about, too. <laughs> it was insane. What was your first impression when you went to Warner? Was this in the office that's, that's still... No, it was, uh, the office was in Broadwick Street. Right, okay. We moved eventually to the office that's um, in Kensington now. Sure. So you were employed specifically to write the press releases yeah. as a writer. So you and we had a newsletter. I mean, I still always have someone here... Well, I write a lot of the press releases here at NBC, but 
<coughs> even in um, at Warner's, eventually I went through the ranks and ran the press office. Um, I always had a writer. Mm. And we had a writer the first probably six, seven years at NBC. Now we share it. Sure. Yeah. But I think, you know, I think that one of the most depressing things about today is young kids come in for jobs. I mean, some of them can't write at all. They can't. I mean, people just write in Twitter speak or mm. texts or slang, and they can't string a sentence together. Yeah. And they also don't have the skills to really talk on the phone. Right. I think talking on the phone and writing are almost like dying arts. Talking on the phone has become one of those things that a lot of people are scared to do. That's because they don't have the skill set yeah, to a, do it. there's a fear to even book a table at a restaurant for some people. It's yeah, I'll do it online. Yeah. I mean, also, you know, when you're with people and you go, oh, what was the third track on that second album? I'll Google it. Mm. And it's much better to just... If you just wait, it'll come to you, or you'll... Yeah. The process of thinking. I mean, it's all great to get an instant answer sometimes. But. Yeah. It's around 1981 where we leave behind BC's career as a music journalist. That year, Moira Bellis was the head of press at Warner Brother Records, and she employed BC to work in the press office as the label's in-house writer. 19 years later, the pair would leave Warner's to set up their own company, NBCPR. But in her first two years, BC would put her writing talents to good use, composing band bios and press releases for three labels in total, Elektra, Warner Brothers and Atlantic. What was your imp first impression when you went in there? To, to I'd always been that? around it. Um, yeah. uh, I was friends with Moira, so I was always in the Warner Brothers office quite a lot. And also in those days, there was like a press reception almost virtually. You could probably dine out at mm. press receptions. Yeah. You know, full bar, spirits. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. You know, 12.30, all of a I mean, it was... <laughs> this, is through the, this is through the 80s, right? 80s and 90s? It was this, you know, the 80s, um, when I joined also, um, when I joined Warner Brothers, um, Smash Hits was around the corner on um, Carnaby Street. Mm. And it was the real gold, it was the beginning of Smash Hits glory days. And um, Neil Tennant was there and we became really, really good friends. Dave Hepworth, Mark Allen, you know, lots of people that have been instrumental in the industry, either making records or TV or whatever, or writing. I mean, they didn't used to have a TV at Smishits. They'd come to our office to watch Top of the Pops. And even that, you know, and the, and the tube. But, you know, sitting around opening a bottle of wine at 6 o'clock on a Thursday night or Friday night or whatever, it was, you know, the communal aspect of it. I think everything now is so solitary and mm. isolated. Yeah, which is. probably is why people can't speak or write. <laughs> but um, in those days, or communicate, really. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Smash Hits was around the corner. Um, you know, Neil was left when he could have been editor, and everyone thought he should have stayed and started the Patch Up Boys. Yeah. Um, he did all right. Yeah, he did fine. Yeah. <laughs> did you... So when you're, you're in Warner and you're writing press releases for pretty much anything that they're releasing that they're giving you, or taking the awful American ones and making it UK right, friendly. Right, sure, okay. How does that work in terms of, because you've been a music journalist, kind of with your own objective opinion about stuff, did, did that... Was no, that it's fun, it was too? creative. I, it's another, writing even press releases and bios as a whole, you know, I still get a kick out of coming up with a good headline and mm. 
it's you know it's just a different skill set but it's still kind of i'd say creatively rewarding obviously taking the american ones and just making sense of them isn't but with the uk things you would originate it yeah sure it's really just like writing an article only probably a little less opinionated mm. like anything it's also finding the right voice for it how long were you doing the writing for before you kind of took on I other I think about other 2 years right it was very casual someone left like they do yeah and it was like oh do you want to try this and i was like yeah just, um, was that just because you thought why not like yeah, yeah and i was lucky it suited me it really really suited me and as i said i think having been a journalist it suited me right and i think it's good because i would have hated to have spent 40 plus years you know being a journalist i'd be pretty bored now yeah whereas and probably broke <laughs> um it's great because it's kind of like 50 50 you know my career as a writer and then yeah. as a pr but as i said it's such a gives you such a good advantage sure you just think in a different way because you're used to papers and yeah so around what time was it that you started working with madonna it's from the beginning super early days for her. first single right Pro promo trip no one knew who she was. You'd call people up and say, if the single doesn't chart, you don't have to run the piece. Mm -hmm. Took her for a bunch of interviews. She wanted to stop at Kensington Market and buy some shoes. I was like, you can't, we're gonna be late. She was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. <laughs> you know, it was really exciting. And it's one of those things that happens in your life, like doing a book on Keith Richards and working with Madonna. Yeah. You know, icons and just luck. A lot of that's luck. Mm -hmm. um, but she used to play the um, beetroot club on Greek Street a little bit when she had her brother and a, another dancer 20 minutes to backing track. And then she played a Coco, which was right. the Camden Palace. And the same around the same time she did the Tube. And then the next time she came back, she played Wembley Stadium. And then wow. if you can, I say that to people and I don't think they quite grasp the enormity of it. Yeah. If you could go from playing a 20-minute set at Camden Palace to having your next gig be Wembley Stadium, that'll never happen ever, ever, in, yeah. ever. How many years is that gap? Three, I think. Okay. I mean... Did you know what? So, can you remember the time you were you were played? Was this a record that, like, at Warner? Burning up was. No, we had Sire Records was part of Warner's. Okay. Seymour Stein had signed her. Mm -hmm. And I think Burning Up was the first single. Holiday was probably the first hit. She was pretty much based in the UK. Right. For a while. And she was big in the UK before she was big in America. In fact, um, Like a Virgin was set to come out as her second record. And it got put back because the first record finally started to happen in America. Right. But I mean, that went nuclear. It yeah. just exploded. Yeah, yeah. Do but there was lots of, um, you know, Prince was on Warners, mm -hmm. Led Zeppelin were, you know, Swan Song. You know, they had under Atlantic and Warners, they had so much. And the stuff they had from the UK was kind of like the Jeff Travis stuff with everything but the girl, sure. Howard Jones. You know, it was a great education. I always loved all kinds of music. Mm. People always talk about, it's normally with, in hindsight, someone like Madonna and people always say oh do you could you tell that she was going to be this huge star she had something mm. but I don't think people even thought like that then because there was so much talent around I think you know I remember Bruce Springsteen who I don't 
work with, but him doing, when the river came out, him doing eight nights at Wembley Arena, I went every single night. Yeah. It was actually, the bands like this, the Stones and the Who that probably took a dip mm. around that time, but um, in terms of really making landmark albums, I mean, when Madonna played Wembley Stadium, there were hardly ever any stadium shows. I mean, now, how many are there this summer? Way too many. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So you were at Warner for about 19 years, yeah, right? Until exactly. 2000. I, if I would have stayed one more year, I probably would have gotten lots of money, but <laughs> I decided to form my own company yeah. and leave. What happened was, um, I had thought about going independent for a while, probably two, three years, maybe, just like you do. Mm. And um, Rob Dickens, who was the chairman uh, of, of Warner's, had left, and several people had left, and then Moira, who was running Warner Brothers left, you know, a new chairman comes in and the MD leaves, they bring in their own person. And I just thought, yeah, it just seemed like the time was right. So um, I left in um, 2000. We started NBC November 1st, I think, 2000. And um, on the front page of the star was Madonna to Marriott Skibo. And like everyone called up. We didn't even have to worry about people <laughs> not knowing the number. I took um, Madonna, R.E.M., um, Simply Red, Rod Stewart with us. And pretty much from the minute we started, the phone rang. Because even though you hadn't worked with other record companies, you'd worked with lots of different managers. Mm. So I think the first big act we got was like literally January, first week of January, Daniel Miller rang and asked about Depeche Mode. Right. I've been doing them ever since. Aerosmith, that happened worked with them for a while but yeah the phone just rings so when you take the kind of the take the artist with you leave the label but you well i left with an understanding it's like that you do these artists and they would pay you and they were happy too because they obviously needed a head of press yeah and it i guess a lot of that comes down to your the relationships you've built up with those artists and yeah exactly they're willing they'll just go i mean you're never going to be a millionaire doing press it's like journalism in a way it's just a um Especially now, you're always arguing and haggling about fees, you know, the, but it's a great life and, you know, if you love music. Yeah. Was it just the two of you when you set it up? You yeah. Were, uh, yeah. Just, just you two in and And uh, a friend's kid okay. who was um, work experience, who was useless. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, you go from a big company where if your computer doesn't work, you call the IT guy yeah. to like, ah! So where but was your office? It was across the street. Oh, we, from here? Yeah. Okay, right. Yeah, we both live in Maida Vale, so St. John's Wood was perfect. Um, yeah, we had one office in the beginning right. with, um, as I said, an intern who was useless. And then then we had two offices and probably four people. And, yeah. I mean, we've never had more than seven. We have six now. It's mm. a boutique. Yeah, yeah. I don't sure. want to do events or brands or... It's all, to me, it's just about the artists, the music. Yeah. Because you're a music fan, essentially. Yeah, the rest exactly. Of it's not for you. Did it feel quite free? I mean, we're going to be 20 next year. Wow. Which Are you going to celebrate in some way? Uh, if I can find someone to pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, we had a 10th anniversary party. Um, yeah, we'll do something. I don't know what. Um, but again, you know, that's probably, I don't know if that's a landmark that'll ever be repeated. Mm. Because I think that independent PR and PR in general, like newspapers, I think there's going to be a, luckily, touch wood, you know, it still feels quite exciting and 
alive, but you know, it it does feel like there's some kind of end. Mm. You know, who knows when that'll be? But um, eventually, I guess there won't be any newspapers, and I still think that print. You know, online. Some of it's great, and some of it's like, yeah. So what? It's like streams. Something got. Two million streams. What does that mean? Hmm. Did someone listen to the whole record? Yeah. But I think all of this, um, you know, from your own career, you've seen a change. Everyone's seen a change. So I do think it'll be eventually an end of an era. And I was lucky. I probably got the best of journalism and the best of PR. Hmm. Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact. You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code Listen to get fifty dollars off your purchase of five hundred dollars or more. That's code Listen at BlueNile.com for fifty dollars off. BlueNile.com code Listen. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Did it feel really freeing, like going from a record label? Yeah, it did. To suddenly, like you can work with anyone on yeah. any label. Yeah. Mainly, people are coming to you, right? As you say, still you're, oh, always. Yeah, you don't have to do much of the none going and. Have you ever done done that? No. That kind of going to see. Oh, you have to. Sometimes they'll be interested in two or three different companies, and they ask you to pitch or write something or go meet someone. I'm usually kind of reluctant to do that. Because I think our roster speaks for itself, and you know, if I said seven things we've worked on this year, and you looked at all the press campaigns, you can tell. Mm. But um, but yeah, you're in business at the same time. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't take anything on if I didn't like it. I think also it's important to like the manager. Because mm-hmm. from my side as a as a journalist, as you'll know, the, our main points of contact are people like you are the PRs. As a PR, is your main point of contact the manager? Is that the person you're going to the most? Or yes. the label? Or? The manager. Right. So that's the key. And also the labels these days. You know, the labels, it, we're all in this together, but labels, media, PRs, it slightly feels like a sinking ship, you know? Mm. I mean, there's less and less people at labels. So they've got, they're, they're overstretched. Yeah. But it does. It seems good and vibrant at the moment. But I'm very optimistic, positive person. So yeah. How many offers have worked? You, you know, you, it's people. Sometimes you say who you're working with, and they're like, "Oh my God, how many people do you have?" 
but not everyone's putting a record out at the same time and um, I try not to take anything on if we can't have the time to do a really good job on it but at the same time if something really great comes you're not going to say no yeah sure it's exciting what's really good about it is you really don't know every day what's going to happen anyone can ring up you know and offer you something amazing or Robert Plant suddenly makes an unbelievable record it's kind of keeps going yeah as you say you're a big um, reader of magazines and newspapers obviously that's part of your job you need to be across everything and know exactly what's being written about about your artists and stuff so how does your how does your is your day structured do you sit down in the morning with your breakfast and read well I get the Sun and the Guardian delivered at home right which I think I'm the only person in the country (laughs) that gets those two yeah (laughs) yeah they're my two favorite papers I mean I um love the sun right and a lot of people are dismissive of it mm. I think it's just gives you a good insight into the general mood of the country mm. and I think with the Guardian it makes a great combination I read the Times quite a bit now too I think it's got better and better but yeah look at the standard um, we get all the papers every day I don't look at all of them I look at what we have in the papers sure. but you know what's running because I mean, you're doing, you're having, not only have you set it up, but all the labels, you know, you do weekly minutes, you're always uh, dates, you know, then there's all the uh, monthly magazines, um, there's Music Week, Mm. there's lots. And then, uh, you know, also obviously online, you know, again, I think the Guardian coverage online is fantastic. I think Enemy, after a real rough time of being treated despicably by the owners and ignored, kind of just thrown to the wolves almost. I think they've rallied, and I think that's really on form again. Yeah. I mean, we need everything we can have. You know, Ted Kessler's done a good job at Q in that they have a, a vision of what's right for them. Mm-hmm. And, and Mojo, obviously, is a fantastic magazine. Yeah. You know, we're lucky for all the U.S. managers that call you and they're so scared about the U.K. press they're really talking about the tabloids and they're really talking about <coughs> mail online probably and right okay. um, but is that I didn't realize that was like yeah they still say oh my god the UK oh it's that old cliche they build you up and drop you but we have so much press compared to America yeah, yeah. America basically doesn't and Rolling Stones that it's, it's almost not even a magazine now mm, yeah. whereas we still have tons of magazines yeah I always tell American managers, just when you're at the airport, go into W.H. Smith and just look at all the magazines and newspapers. Yeah. Is that why you think the UK is still considered so important within yeah, the music Yeah, absolutely. Industry? It's smart as yeah. well. Yeah. So what do you think, for you, this is quite a impossible, maybe an impossible question <laughs> to answer, but what makes a good PR? You have to love music. I think the problem with 2019 is... A lot of people that want to work in the music business really just want to work with celebrities. They want to go to um, after shows and parties and they don't really want to do the hard work. It's all kind of superficial gloss, a bit like Instagram really. But I think that you need to really like music. You have to be knowledgeable. All the broadsheet writers and Boys at Q and Mojo, you know, it helps if you know the second Fleetwood Mac album or the third track on Let It Bleed that you've even heard those records Mm. and I think you have to really love newspapers 
you have to have an understanding of uh, your of the audience that you're you have to know what an angle is and positioning is and I think you only know that I always tell when people start out if you read someone's reviews you'll know within two three weeks what their taste is yeah yeah but people don't you know I think people don't they're lazy people don't really do but I was just you know that's something that just I would do anyways mm. How about and how about the side the side of it that's like the people manage the working with the artists? You have to be likable. Yeah. And personality is everything. You mm. have to be enthusiastic. I think you have to be articulate. You have to be organized. Lots of those things. Yeah, I presume. Well, you must know. You know. Yeah, of course. I mean, I could ask you. Um, why do you like certain PRs and not others? You know, you can't yeah. call someone up and just go. Are you going to do? You know, it's easy. Like right now, Mark Ronson, the week after Madonna, put out a great record. Of course, almost everyone wants to interview Madonna and Mark Ronson. But for me, it's also about the people that you have relationships with 12 months a year. Mm. Um, because as much as you ask all the questions which are interesting about what the PR does, the journalists also, and listen, they get sent a ton of music, and I appreciate you can't listen to everything. But... As much as I should read everything, you know, journalists need to also listen to it. Yeah. You, you can't listen to, you can't make a decision on doing a feature on someone by listening to the first 20 seconds of four tracks and then saying, I don't really like the record. Yeah, that's true. But lots of things go into it. Um, and, and there's probably so many similarities between what makes a good journalist and what makes um, a good PR. Do you have to be quite diplomatic in terms of when you're talking to managers and artists about s bad reviews or things that have... <coughs> you have to be diplomatic, life? but you also have to be realistic. Mm. And I'm always very, very realistic. You know, I will sit in a meeting and say, there's no way we're going to get a broadsheet. If there's no way we're going to get a broadsheet, because you can't pretend. Because they will constantly be expecting yeah. that broadsheet if you yes, can't exactly. that. Yes, exactly. So you also have to explain um, in a positive way as opposed to a negative way. When we get a really, really awful review, I mean, I want something horrible and cruel, which doesn't happen that much, but does happen. You will just send it to the manager and the label and say, we're not going to service this wide. Yeah, sure. I suppose you're in quite a unique, you've always been in a unique position because you worked half of your career as a writer you've also got that perspective of what uh, you would have dealt with PRs and you would you yeah exactly I mean it's not even that it's also knowing that you can't have someone interview four different people because they'll never know when they record it whose voice is who you can't be in a noisy room all that kind of stuff a white wall really isn't a great thing for a photo shoot yeah yeah these are kind of basic things that a lot of people don't realize though aren't they like it takes unless you do it yeah it exactly. takes a while for you to realize oh no that's well the other thing too is these days a lot of people don't even ever meet the artists mm. it depends what level you are of pr and what level of acts you have and you know a lot of people maybe haven't worked on someone and and seen them become a superstar yeah from hello can you do this artist yeah it might happen yeah in your career as a PR, has there ever been a situation that you felt is kind of out of your control, there's nothing you can do about it? Because one of the things with, with you within the music industry is you're 
you're considered completely unflappable. Like, <laughs> like that's, I don't know if you're aware of that, but that's kind of how people see you. So has there ever been any, any, any times where there must be like when things happen that are completely out of your control as a publicist, there's often, you imagine a lot of running around and people kind of trying to fix things. Well, there's that exactly. great saying, it is what it is, right. which will probably be, you know, I'll take to my grave. Yeah, um, but that's, it, it, that is true. I mean, you also, less is more, it's important to know when not to say anything, mm -hmm. what not to comment on, and not to get involved in. You're right, a lot of things sometimes are completely out of your control. And I think experience, the more experience you have. I mean, yeah, you're right. Right now at this point in my career, I feel like, and I shouldn't say this because tomorrow something could happen <laughs> that I have never dealt with, but you feel like you've kind of dealt with almost everything yeah. that could happen bad and good. So that gives you confidence. And you also have to just be completely, you have to have an opinion and you have to stick to it and you have to believe in it. Sure. Is it getting harder to not comment on things in a world of social media where people's... No, it's, you know, a lot of that stuff, the instant, everyone wanting a reaction, mm. you know, especially with, with really, really big artists like Madonna, you just basically have to ignore. Yeah. I suppose the good thing about it is that it won't be long until social media started to blow something else out of proportion that they want to answer on. Yeah, but I think also people don't take it all that seriously. Mm. You know, it's so instantaneous. Five minutes after, you know, sports is kind of the same way. It's all just conjecture and rumor. I mean, the other thing that you have to remember is it's just one person's opinion. Yeah. That's what I always say, you know, to an artist or a manager when there's a really bad review. It is just one person's opinion. Yeah. Nothing more. Yeah. What's next for NBC? What's your... Our 20th, 20th birthday 20th next birthday. year. You know, um, we've had a really good year this year. Um, we started the year with Jack Savaretti and Tom Walker and Dido doing really, really well. All really diverse. And Mark Ronson, Madonna, Metallica shortly followed. I've only been working with the Foo Fighters for like two and a half years and it feels like forever and that's really exciting mm. that's been fantastic Metallica s seriously blew my mind live last week and we've not even been working with them a year so that's really exciting too Keen just got back together which again you know Madonna Keen Metallica we do Ollie Murs and Paloma Faith the variety is insane mm. and I think that's just makes you better I think if people if you ring the same people all the time about one thing, they're just going to be like, next. <laughs> yeah. Cool. I think that's all my questions <laughs> done. Thanks so much. See, having been a journalist, I can like blah, blah, <laughs> that's blah. That's good. That's good. That's exactly what I'm after. <laughs>Music Made Me Do It is produced by Dream Team and Loud and Quiet and edited by Emma Snook. For more information, please visit loudandquiet.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app to receive all future episodes. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 